Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Sherlock's Podcast, your guide to a more stylish life. Janine Weber was born in Poland in 1932, and following the Nazi-Soviet pact in 1939, Janine and her family were forced into a ghetto on the outskirts of Lvov. Soon after, her mother contracted typhus and died aged just 29, prompting Janine's uncle to find a Polish farmer who was willing to hide Janine and her aunt, although this proved to be the start of a series of new ordeals. In the end, Janine moved back to Lvov and to a convent until the city was liberated in early 1945. After the war, Janine's aunt returned and took Janine to Paris before Janine came to the UK in 1956, where she met and married her husband, with whom she had two sons and two grandsons. Now Janine lives in London, where she spends time sharing her testimony, which is what she's here to do today. Welcome, Janine. So how are you today? I I am fine. Good. You've travelled far to be here. Thank Uh, you so much. Yes, but I don't mind. I think I want to carry on and speak about what happened to my family, to other Jews and to me. So tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up and a bit of context for the time. I was born in eastern Poland in a town called Lwów. Now, it's a bit complicated because when I was born... It was Poland. Unfortunately, now it's not Poland anymore. I say unfortunately because Lwów is a very beautiful town and it was the third biggest Polish town with a very big Jewish community, 150,000. So it was Poland, but it's now Ukraine. So I want to say about that something because, you know, the war is going on in Ukraine and a lot of people are dying. But I am going to speak about what happened many years ago with a different generation. So sometimes it might be a little sensitive. Lvov, it's called now Lviv, Ukrainian, but I call it Lvov, was the third biggest Polish town and it's a very beautiful beautiful town. It has an opera house similar to the one in Paris. It's a very cultural town with universities, theatres. In Lvov there were three communities equally divided and I think it's quite important. You will see why a little later. There was the Polish Catholic community, Ukrainian community, Orthodox Christians and the Jewish community and it was a very very big Jewish community, over 150,000. As I said before, unfortunately, most of them perished. And I am one of the very few, less than 2%, who managed to survive. I am most likely, this time, perhaps one of the few of the people from Lvov. And I think I had a quite a happy
happy childhood. Tell me a bit about your family setup. Any brothers or sisters? My family was moderately religious. My father used to take me to the synagogue if I wanted to go, and I did want to go on Saturday morning because our synagogue was an Orthodox synagogue, which meant that the men sat on one side, women on the other. They didn't mix. But I was allowed to sit with the men, with my father, and they made a lot of fuss of me, and I liked it. <laughs> I must say I still do, but I don't get so much fuss nowadays. So my family, we used to go on holiday. Well, not very far, not as it is now. We would go to a village next to Lvov. And I have photos from our holidays. My mother was very fond of her family. They were 10 children. And my mother wasn't the youngest. The youngest was my auntie. And I will mention her again because she played a very important part in my life. And so any brothers? And I had a brother two years younger called Tunio. Uh, unfortunately, they killed him. Okay, we're going to get to all of yes. that. Okay, yeah. so you were seven years old when the Nazis invaded? In 1939, when the war started, I was seven, and Germany and the Soviet Union, or Russia as it is called now, had a pact, and they divided Poland into two. Western Poland became German, Eastern Poland, where we lived, became Russian, and the Russians came to our town. My life under the Russians didn't really change that much, except I was sent to school, because in Poland, children start school when they're about seven. But I knew that my parents were very worried about something. And when I asked my mother, what is going on? She said, the Russians are sending to Siberia people with money and property. And of course, Siberia being one of the coldest places on our planet, they didn't want to be sent there. Well, we were not sent to Siberia because we didn't have a lot of money. And this very modest flat where we live, I don't even know if it belonged to us or if we rented it. After the war, I regretted that we were not sent to Siberia because 50% of the people who were sent to Siberia survived the cold weather. But my parents did not survive the German occupation. So when the Russians came in, life didn't change that much. When did life change? When do you remember moving to the outskirts of the city in preparation of the ghettos, you know, talk us through that. Yes, so in 1941, I was just about nine, my brother was seven, the Germans decided to forget about the pact and they started moving eastwards with the idea to occupy Russia. And they came to our town. Now, I told you that there was one of the communities that were Ukrainians. In those days, some of the Ukrainians didn't like the Jews and they started persecuting them, unfortunately, even before the Germans started. 
Is it important to note anti-Semitism, which is what this kind of dislike, hatred for Jewish people is, was not born at this time. It existed in Eastern Europe specifically and Europe for centuries before exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Anti-Semitism, I think, started with Jesus, really, who was Jewish, but they didn't agree with the Jewish traditions. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism has existed and still does in many, many countries. So the Jews have been persecuted for centuries. And in Poland, especially and in Russia, there were pogroms, there were attacks on Jews and killing them and raping women. So it started a long time ago. So now getting back to your kind yeah. of story. So you moved into the ghetto. Not yet. Okay, tell me oh, about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm rushing. Wait, you're rushing. Okay, yeah. sorry, sorry. Well, on. what happened was 1941, the Germans came, the Ukrainians, some of them started persecuting the Jews. The Germans decided to round up the Jewish men. So one day when I was in the flat with my mother, my brother and myself, I heard the, the Gestapo. I don't know if people know that name, Tell but us. the Gestapo was the German armed police under the orders of the army. And they were those who were generally shooting the Jews, persecuting them, hitting them. For any other reason other than that they were Jewish? No other reason, just Jewish. So when I was in my flat and heard the Gestapo screaming and calling the Jews by unpleasant names, my father came running in and he said, the Germans are after me. So my mother locked the door and my father, in order to escape, jumped from our second floor balcony onto the first floor balcony and he hid underneath. My mother had to let the Gestapo in. They didn't find my father and they left. When they left, I asked my mother, why do they want my father? And my mother said, it's because we are Jewish. And I never knew about it. I always used to play in the streets with other children and seeing the armed soldiers, I became very frightened. After a couple of hours, my father came back. He survived the jump, but he had broken his leg. And that's where we were told to leave our flat, to take a minimum a suitcase. The ghetto was not yet ready. You know, all of towns in Poland, small and big, had a ghetto surrounded by a fence or a wall where they would send all the Jews, where the conditions became atrocious. I will tell you a little more about the ghetto in a minute, but they wanted to take over Jewish property and belongings. So they gave us, they told us to move into a little house. They gave us a room for my parents and my brother. My grandmother used to take care of me because both my parents worked and she came and she slept in the corridor. Now, my cousin Nina, who was four years younger, she and her parents and her brother, they lived in the same building on the first floor and they too were thrown out of the flat were given a room in that little house. Well, my auntie, now I want to speak about her. She played such an important part in my life. 
as my auntie was the tenth child to my grandmother. When she was born, my grandmother was always ill and nobody really took notice of her and just let her do what she wanted. And she became quite a rebel. She rejected the Jewish traditions and all my family, they were very critical. And in 41, 1941, she was 17. She got herself a boyfriend. <laughs> now that was shocking for a traditional Jewish community. And I remember everybody was saying how terrible. Her boyfriend was Jewish actually, and he spoke German, and he had a contact among the German soldiers who would warn him if they were rounding up the Jews or shooting them. And after a few days in that little house, she came and she said, when you hear the Gestapo, hide. So my parents dug a hole under the wardrobe. When we heard the Gestapo, my mother, my brother and I, we hid in that hole under the wardrobe, but there was no room for my father and my grandmother. And they hid in the attic of that house. My cousin Nina and her mother, they hid in their wardrobe and her father and her brother, who was between 10 and 12, hid in the attic. The Gestapo found them hiding in the attic. I don't know what they did to my grandmother. I heard her screaming. They took them away. They didn't find us hiding in the hall under the wardrobe. And when they left, after a while, I said to my mother, what happened to my father and my grandmother? And my mother said they shot them. You see, people think that most of the Jews were deported, but no, only a small number number. What they used to do to start with, they would shoot them. But the soldiers found very difficult to shoot children. The Gestapo in charge knew about it, so they decided that it was easier to gas them, to send them to concentration camps. So my father, my grandmother, my cousin's father, Nina's father, and her brother, they were shot. How did you get yourself into survival mode? Did you know at that young age, this really was life or death and you had to kind of remove that grief or did you grieve during this time? Well, no, because I cannot remember grief. I loved my father and my grandmother. My grandmother used to take me tales, fairy tales, Bible stories. I knew then that they were killing the Jews. I knew I was nine. I knew. You know, my mother didn't hide anything from me. I would ask her what happened and she would tell me. Just the practicality of hiding underneath the wardrobe. What kind of space? How long would you be in there for? Well, it was only very small because there was no room for my father no. and my grandmother. They just dug enough room for us. You know, there are details I don't remember, but I suppose we stayed perhaps for an hour in that hall and then we came out when it was quiet, when they have gone. So after a few days, my auntie came back to see us. My mother had no money. We had no food. So my auntie, who was quite a resourceful young woman, she managed to sell some clothes and the money she got, she bought some food and gave it to my mother. And I remember my mother eating 
peels of potatoes which she would boil and everything else she would give it to my brother and to me. And then after another few days my auntie came and she said hide when you hear them. So this time my mother, my brother and I and also my cousin Nina and her mother we hid in kennels with a little shed which was in the courtyard. And I remember sitting holding on to my mother. My brother was holding on to her and I was looking through the wooden slats and I remember seeing the Gestapo approaching and I was so frightened that I didn't look at their faces. I just looked at their boots. They always had these black shiny boots and for years I used to have this nightmare that the boots were coming to get me. Fortunately I don't have this nightmare anymore. Well they didn't find us and they left. Very soon we were told to move to the ghetto. We were given a small room in the ghetto. I will tell you in a minute a little more about the conditions. My mother, so there was a little room with a bed. My mother very soon became ill and it was very dangerous to be ill in the ghetto because what they used to do, there were people dying, there were corpses, dead children lying on the pavement. We could see all this and what they used to do occasionally, they would come and gather and pick up the corpses and if they knew of a person who was ill, they would take them away and throw them on top of the corpses even if they were still alive and that's what happened to my cousin's mother, to Nina's mother. Nina, by the way, was about five. She became ill with typhus. Typhus, a lot of people died of typhus. It's a disease of poverty. It's a disease of lack of food and lack of hygiene. And it can be cured if one has medication, but nobody had any in the ghetto. So when her mother became ill, they found her. They threw her on top of the corpses. She was still alive. My cousin Nina was there when it happened. She saw it. So when my mother became ill, my uncle, in order to protect her, to hide her, carried her into the cellar of that building where we were. I went down to see her and the conditions of that cellar were terrible. There was water running down the walls. There were the rats. She didn't look at me. She looked at a distance and she didn't speak to me. And I couldn't understand why, because my mother had always been very affectionate, very loving. And I became so upset by this situation, so frightened that I ran out and I didn't really even hug her. I found my uncle and my uncle said my mother had died. She died of typhus. But in the most humane way possible within that awful scenario. Well, a lot of her friends who were still alive said, using a Yiddish word, Mazeltov, which means good luck, good luck to her. She doesn't have to suffer anymore. So I was left with my brother. And how old are you now? I was nine. I was just nine and about two or three months. My brother was seven. My cousin Nina was five. And so you're all now without your parents? Yes. Or your uncle's still there? My uncle was still there. 
he managed to escape. I will tell you in a minute a little more about my uncle who got married just before the war. He must have been 1938 or 37, and he had a wife and a baby, and they were killed, they were shot. But he survived because he was caught. He managed to escape, therefore was really very helpful. So I was left with my brother. My auntie said to me, get out of the ghetto if you can, because she was told by her boyfriend that they will be coming and shooting people. Can I just pause and say, yes. or ask? So obviously this relationship that was initially frowned upon became a great source of information for you all, but also showed how there were people on the other side who were still offering help where they could, even though it would have caused them, they could have been killed for it too. Well, yes, it's a little more complicated than that. What happened, you see, when my auntie said to me, get out, where? What do you do? Yeah. Where do you go? Who do you speak to? All the Jews who were still alive were in the ghetto. But I noticed that somebody dug a hole under the fence which surrounded our ghetto. So in the morning, my brother and I, we decided, well, maybe I decided and he came with me to crawl through the hole into the area where it was safe. We knew there were no Jews outside, so nobody would kill us. But we walked all day. We didn't know who to speak to. We didn't know where to go. So in the evening, we decided to go back to the ghetto. When we arrived near the hole, there was a group of Polish children. And they said to us, give us your coats. If not, we were called the Germans. And you know, it was winter. In winter, in eastern Poland, which is now Ukraine, is very bad. No comparison with our winter here. We gave them our coats and they let us crawl back into the ghetto. Now, my uncle was still alive because he managed to escape. He was on the lorry where they were taking all the Jews. And I knew this because my uncle has written also, he survived, written an autobiography. My mother saw him being on the lorry. So she shouted from the door. She said, jump down, don't go. So my uncle jumped down of the lorry and he managed to escape. Now, my uncle knew quite a lot of Polish Catholic farmers. So he found the family farmers to hide my auntie and me and also a family to hide my cousin Nina and my brother. He paid everyone. We were hiding in the stables when the farmer came and he started touching my aunt and grabbing her. I didn't know what it was all about. You know, I was, as I said, just over nine. We had no idea about inappropriate harassment in those days. Children are very, very naive, very innocent. I could see that she was terrified. She begged him to let her go. He wouldn't. And suddenly she got up and ran out. And I was left with the farmer. They locked me in a room. There was a bed and a bucket. And I would be lying there. There was nowhere to sit. Occasionally they would bring me some food and when they came one day I was getting very cold so I asked them if they could bring me something to cover myself with. They brought me an old man's coat and I noticed that this coat was infected 
with crawling headlights. And this might sound horrible to modern people nowadays, but I kept killing them. And I think having something to do saved my mind. Because if you lie there, months after months, nobody to talk to, because they never talked to me. I remember I was beginning to see animals in the walls. You can lose your mind. After about maybe three months, they told me to go. They didn't want to keep me any longer. So I found my way back into the ghetto. I remember the hole. My uncle was alive. He found another family to hide my brother and to hide me. Polish farmers. One morning, the daughter of this family, who was about 20, she came with a German soldier, with what we used to call SS, those who were killing the Jews. I knew that she brought him to kill my brother and to kill me, because by then I knew they were killing all the Jews. For some reason, which I cannot explain, he didn't want to kill me. And they killed Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My brother, he was seven. Did they make you what? No, they told me to start walking, and I knew he he was going to shoot me. But as I said before, he didn't want to shoot me. So I walked and walked, and that's when they killed my brother. And after a few hours, I became hungry, and I saw a woman working in the field. So I asked her if she could give me a piece of bread. She wanted to know who I was. I knew I must never tell that I was Jewish. So I invented a story. It was too easy, really, because I knew by then that the Ukrainians, some of them didn't like the Jews, but they didn't get on well with the Poles. And some of them were killed. So I told them my family Catholic was killed, and she believed me somehow. She took me in. She said, I can help her in the house. I stayed with her for maybe two or three months. After that, she said she learned I was Jewish. It was too dangerous to hide the Jew. She bought me a train ticket, and I went back to Lvov. I had with me the name and address of a young Polish man called Edek. Edek was 19. He was a friend of my family. And when the war started, he said to them, if you ever need some help, try and find me and I will help you. So I found him. 
How? How did you even go about that? Well, I kept asking people. I had this address, you know, I wanted to live. So I was very resourceful. I'm much less resourceful nowadays. <laughs> but I suppose it was a matter of life and death. And I kept asking people. And being a little girl, I always looked much younger. And although I was nine, I must have looked seven, perhaps. And people, you know, believed me. And so I would ask about this address. And eventually, I found him. He was in his office. I told him who I was. So he got up and he said, walk behind me at a distance. He obviously was afraid of being seen with me. He took me to a small building, put a ladder against the wall, and told me to climb the ladder. When I climbed, climbed the ladder and opened the door to the loft, I found my auntie, my uncle, my auntie's boyfriend, 13 Jews. Edek was hiding 13 Jews and I was the 14th. He is a hero. He would have been shot immediately. We were there when at night they would go down, they dug a hole under the stable's floor, and one night we all went down that hole. It was a little easier to hide in the hole rather than in the loft, and a little safer. Mm. It was fairly well organized, actually. There were six planks and chairs and a bulb hanging from the ceiling and a bucket. And we had to take it in turn to lie on the plank or sit on the chair. There was no room for walking. You know, it's very hot living on the ground. And I remember just wearing my underwear. We had very little food. My auntie would go out at night. She would buy some food the next day and come back the following night. She was a very brave woman. And but I you must, were all very brave. I don't know, but she, in fact, during one of her outings, she was raped. I didn't know it at that time. I learned it from her after the war. I remember eating slices of dry bread with chopped up raw onions, and I thought it was delicious. <sighs> I still like it sometimes, <laughs> but now, oh, nice of course, snack. I add a little butter also. <laughs> anyway, then I stayed in that hole nearly a year. One day, my auntie said that she and my uncle decided it was too hard for a child to live in a hole. My auntie managed to find some false papers, and one night we left the hole, and my name changed. I had to learn all my different background, obviously. And she took me to a Polish co committee, which was formed to help the Poles, because they too suffered from the Germans. In that office, when the woman saw me, she said to my aunt, are you sure this little girl isn't Jewish? And I'm not surprised, because I could hardly walk. I was dragging my legs. And Why? Because you were so malnourished. And I was very thin. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how my face looked because for a year I didn't have any fresh air or daylight. But my auntie, nobody suspected her because she was blonde. And in Poland, people believed that all the Jews were dark. But in my family, 
quite a few were blonde. So my aunt was very, very strong woman, very articulate and very convincing. And she convinced her that I wasn't Jewish, that I was a Catholic. So she gave me a letter and I went to a convent run by nuns in Lvov. They took me in, but the next morning the nuns the mother superior who is in charge of a convent said to me, it's too difficult for you to be here because you are most likely very ill and we don't want people to catch your disease. So she gave me a bus ticket and I went to Krakow and found an orphanage run by nuns. Don't forget, it was the war, and a lot of Poles were killed, actually, as well. So there were a lot of orphans. They took me in. Of course, they didn't know I was Jewish, and I didn't want to tell anyone. But, you know, the Catholic nuns pray several times a day, and I didn't know the Catholic prayers. So I kept moving my lips to pretend, but I was very worried that they might find out. And also, I could hardly walk. So I asked the mother superior in charge, why is it that other children can run and I can hardly walk? And she said to me, and you know, it's something which I remember. She said, you have to accept that you will never walk properly. Well, she was wrong. I am actually a very good walker. Very good at 90, let me tell you. Yes, and I I was from, up to quite recently, I was a member of the Ramblers and I could do eight miles, 10 miles, yes. You showed her. Yes, (laughs) so I wasn't very happy. So one day when an elderly priest arrived, he said he had a little house with a garden. He could take four girls. I asked him, if he would take me. And that is how I used to walk in his little garden, sit in the sun, and little by little, I recovered the use of my leg muscles. He was a very kind man, but what I didn't like, we slept in bunk beds. I slept in the lower bunk bed, and the girl on top would wet her bed, and I was always worried it might run on me. But I never wanted to complain because he looked to me so old and he was so kind. So one day when an elderly couple arrived, they said they would like a girl to help them in the house. I asked them if they would take me. That is how at 11 and a half I became a maid. And they hired hired me out. I mean, they literally wanted a child slave. Absolutely. Absolutely. But to you, did that seem like a good opportunity? It was, because I was worried about the bunk beds, you see, sleeping. I thought my life would be better. Each time I changed, I tried to improve my life. And uh, it was better because, of course, they were not nasty people. You know, I would do little things like little housework. They were elderly. They hired me out to work for another family. So I did a little bit work for the other family and looked after their cow, which I didn't like actually. (laughs) And uh, they they didn't know I was Jewish, of course. And every Sunday I would go to church. And you know, the Catholic children have to go to be prepared for communion. So they have to go to confession and they have to learn catechism. I was actually very good at learning catechism because I always liked and I still do learning and reading. So the priest liked me 
but I didn't know what to confess to because by then I just didn't know what sin I had committed. None? Survival is not a sin? Exactly. And I was going to church every Sunday. I thought, well, I most likely am a Catholic now. Did you ever have a sense of guilt or fear? Like, would you ever have said you were Jewish in confession? No, I would never, never. And even to this priest who was very nice towards me, I would never tell him I was Jewish Mm. because I couldn't trust anyone. It was too dangerous. Mm. I remember, I saw what was happening in the ghetto. I saw what happened to my family. So I did my communion because he liked me. He sort of let me do the communion. I've got a lovely photo of me in my white dress. When I arrived in that village, I wrote to Edek, but there was no answer. But six months after the war, my auntie came. He gave her my address and she took me to Krakow. The people actually where I lived, this elderly couple, when my aunt told them that I was Jewish, they couldn't believe it. They said, it's impossible. She goes to church every Sunday and she likes it. Of course I liked it. I used to wear my only dress and I liked seeing people. Did you, even amongst all of this time, make any friends of your own age or get to have any fun or lightness in your life? Well, yes. I used to play with children who looked after the cows in the fields. I had this uh, cow which was very unruly, actually. (laughs) How did you manage a cow with no experience? Well, it's not difficult. You know, you hold the cow by a rope and the cow eats grass (laughs) and you carry on. Did you milk the cow? No, no, I never milked the cow, no. (laughs) What I liked was the children used to roast potatoes in the fire and we would eat that and I enjoyed it. So my aunt took me away, put me in the children's home and for Jewish children who survived hiding and false papers, we were in Zakopane, which is a very well-known winter resort. A, A lot of Poles go there to ski. But after the war, unfortunately, there was still a lot of anti-Semitism. And this is well documented. And the people, the Jews who survived, the few who survived, who went back to the houses or flats, unfortunately, they were killed by the Poles. And there is a film which you might want to see, which came out about three or four years ago by a Polish non-Jewish director, which was forbidden in Poland, who shows that a Jewish family went back to their houses and the Poles killed them to get their house. And it was easy to do, you see. So we left Poland. We went to Paris. And How this did is... you get to Paris? Well, the people in charge of that Jewish home, they organized. It was illegal to go to travel. We took a coach, and I've got a photo of the coach with my cousin Nina and my auntie, and they drove illegally. We managed to, to get out of Poland, and I remember us going through Germany to Czechoslovakia then, and then to Paris. When we arrived in Paris, they wanted to take the children to Israel, but my aunt wanted to stay in Paris and to study, to go to the French University, La Sorbonne. And she asked Nina and me, what do you want to do? We said, we want to be where she was. Well, she was still very young. She didn't have any money. So she put us in a children's home for Jewish 
French children who survived. And uh, that's how, within two or three months, I spoke French. I went to school. And uh, Did you just immerse yourself entirely? Absolutely, because I had to speak because nobody spoke Polish. How did you teach yourself French? Well, uh, I used to read. I still uh, read a lot. I am, uh, you know, a great reader. And uh, I read magazines. And also speaking with other children who didn't know any Polish. Mm. They were French. And uh, so my education is French. And also my language is French. I speak fluent French. When I was 24, I came to England just for three or four months to improve my English. And I met an Englishman. <laughs> yes, you guess the rest. <laughs> we guessed it. The rest. We got married. I have two sons and two grandsons. Did um did he was he involved in the war? No, no. He is English from Manchester actually. And he is well, he was here during the war. Mm. He was a child, but he was sort of not non-English. He mm. was like other English children. So then you moved to Paris with him. Well, we we lived for a while in Manchester, well, for maybe a year or two in Manchester where he came from and then we moved to Paris because I missed my my cousin who survived Nina and uh, who is by the way married to a Frenchman she has a son and a grandson but after a few months we went back to England what happened with your aunt how did her life then my auntie she was such an incredible woman she died actually in 2019 fairly recently Mm. i used she lived in france i used to go every two or three months to stay with her yes and uh, she was 95 when she died but she eventually became fairly eccentric but we were very fond of each other I also saw, and in fact, not so long ago, I've been to Paris because my cousin Nina lives in Paris. And uh, I used to see her a lot and my auntie quite a lot. Yes. So you, obviously you are related anyway, but your auntie and your cousin became your absolute closest next of kin. Yes, yes, yes. Because my uncle who survived as well, after the war, he married again, and uh, 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 there is a son was born to him who lives actually in New York. So my, that's my family. Uh, so I sort of eventually stayed in England with my two sons. And how old are your sons? My sons, I've got twin boys. Oh, wow. They are six. They will be sixty-four on Saturday. But they're still your boys. <laughs> well, they're still my children, of oh, course. They they're... must be so proud of all the work you do because you're working all the time. Yes, I I don't consider it as a job, but for me, it's so important to do it, and they know that it's important, and they would. The first twin to start doing it. Maybe. Without them, I wouldn't have been doing it. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Because yeah. um, other survivors have also mentioned that for many, many years, they didn't want to talk about yes. it. Yes. What was your kind of journey into opening up and then sharing your testimony again and again? Okay, well, what happened? My sons felt that I my story should be known. So they in 1996, they organized an interview for the Shoah Foundation. The Shoah Foundation was set up by Steven Spielberg, the filmmaker, to interview all the survivors. So they organized somebody, a lady who came to interview me and a filmmaker. 
And that was because for 50 years, I never spoke about it. But they knew. Well, they didn't know details, but they knew vaguely what happened. And they learned at school a lot. And they felt that I ought to speak about it. I couldn't speak to them. I was always worried that they might get too upset about it. But they wanted me to tell my story. And I became so upset giving all the details that the lady who interviewed me, she said that I need some help. And she gave me a telephone number of a psychotherapist. And eventually, not immediately, eventually, I went to see him because I couldn't get over the fact going over my story, which I hadn't told before in details. It was the first time. And so I had help from the psychotherapist for quite a few years, three or four years. And eventually he said I should speak now in school. And did you feel ready that you could tell the story without it? Yeah, upsetting you to that level every time. Yes, then I felt that maybe it's important for me to tell this story. And just tell us a little bit about like what your life now looks like with your telling your story. How often are you out and about? Where do you go? Who are you talking to? My life materially is quite good. And I am obviously retired. I worked for many years. I worked in education, actually. I was very lucky to like my job. Uh, My sons and I were very attached to each other. It's very good. And I uh, joined actually an organization. At first, it was called Jewish Cultural Center with was in London, Golders Green. And then now it's called Holocaust Survivors Trust. And it's uh, called H-E-T. And they usually organize my talks. So I talk in schools, universities, companies, government departments. And, uh, well, you are it's busy. a vari- variety of things. You're talking to us here at Sheila. Yes, here. <laughs> to you. I quite often interviews, being interviewed and articles are written, films are made. I never want this. Mm -hmm. I don't like reading about it either. But I know it's possible to find me, you know, on the website. I know and I don't know how I come across. Brilliantly. (laughs) May I ask you, why do you feel it's so important? I obviously think it's incredibly essential, but why do you think it's so important? I, it's very important for people to know what happened. It's very important not to forget, because can you imagine six million Jews being killed only because they were Jews? It's important because they were ordinary people who killed the Jews, and it mustn't happen again. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of innocent people being killed, and there is still a lot of anti Semitism. And I hope that with me talking about it will help young people like you all are here to stand up to persecution, to stand up to prejudice and racism and anti-Semitism. In all its forms. Yes, of course. When there's issues and, and political issues with refugee situations, how does that make you feel? Well, I am a refugee myself from a 
what was Poland. I went to France. From France, I came to England. I have lived now here for a long time. And I really, I live in London. I love London. I'm very happy living in England. I'm very, very concerned about some of the refugees who are fleeing persecution, who are fleeing misery. And that was my case. So I feel very, when I hear, especially about children and children dying, I'm heartbroken. And it reminds me of me fleeing persecution, of my brother, of my cousin Nina, who managed to survive, who's 86 now. You've given so much of your time and your story is absolutely remarkable and you are a very resilient, strong survivor, what you've overcome. How do you live a life of joy and see optimism and not, you know, you could have gone into a very bitter, dark place, hated people, had resentment. How did you reframe your outlook on life so that you were able to have a fulfilling and happy life? I managed, of course, without my most of my family. I lost my family. I am not angry against the young people, the young Germans or the young Poles, but I am still angry against the very old ones, old Nazis, who they might still be around one or two, but I have been very lucky. I managed to survive. And that's why I want to tell my story. And I don't know if I'm resilient. I'm quite an ordinary, a normal person. And I had a very uh, lucky family, very good family, I mean. And I have my two sons and two grandsons, and I see them a lot. And I I have a very good life. I have a lot of interests, and I do a lot of giving talks. So I meet a lot of people, and people generally are very kind to me. So, yeah, so, and one of my sons said to me, you are full of joy for life. In French, it's roi de vivre, you know. And uh, yes, because I like going out and I have been lucky that I managed to survive. Janine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me. We really appreciate your time and your story. Thank you. And yeah, we're thrilled to share it with as many people that will listen to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 